0: So, who did your wedding? Dr. Pace, Dr. Pace yeah. <laughs> Boy, I got close though, I was the second choice, right? <laughs> no, it, 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 it's great to have you over here now This is the first time since I've been here that you've been on staff here, right? You weren't here last year, right? And uh, so, I'm so glad you're here Jim, you were here when I first came here, right? How long have you been here? 25, 30, how long? 21. Years. 21. So you were here the first time I came, because it was, so, so that's the first time, like 20th time or something like that. And uh, Jaron probably, how long have you been here, Jaron? Uh, since since do the math for me. 22. So uh, you've been here since the first time I came. Now, your role has changed over those years, but you've been here that whole time. And uh, then, uh, you know, Courtney's in the children's ministry, and she was another student of mine at OBU. And uh, I hate to start talking because I'm going to leave somebody out. But um, I always look forward to to coming back here. And, And you people, as a congregation, have just been so welcoming to me over all these years. And uh, always look forward to it. And uh, you're at the tail end of my sort of January Bible study tour. Uh, The way it just falls, it works out. My Januarys, I just roll those over so I go to the same places. Uh, And so it starts January 1st. And this around Easter is kind of the wrapping up uh, when anybody wants to schedule those. And this is always when mine falls, right around in this time of the year. And uh, so I always look forward to it. I know when it's coming. Easter is one of the indications that I'm going to be coming because it's always around Easter, a couple weeks before this year. But uh, so happy to, to, uh, to be back here again this, this particular week. So what are we studying this time? Well, I follow whatever the, whatever the Southern Baptist Convention tells me to do. That's what I do. I am a Southern Baptist. And uh, so the Lifeway determines every year in advance of the next year. So next year is Ephesians. So they've already determined that. Uh, so it goes two New Testament, one Old Testament. That's, that's usually the pattern. And so this year it's the Psalms. In my younger days at OBU, when I was scrambling to get all my regular requirements done uh, I would lean on Old Testament even when it went to the New Testament or excuse me, when it went to the Old Testament I would still do New Testament because that was just in my wheelhouse but now I'm an old guy, I've been there 25 years so I feel like I can do it, so now whatever it is, so we did Jer- I think we did Jeremiah just a couple years ago and, and now it's the Psalms, so we're going to do Psalms, now we're not going to do 150 Psalms in like five sessions Uh, that that's not gonna happen but we're looking at the character of God in the Psalms so uh, in the Sunday School Hour I did an introduction to the Psalms and so what I want to focus on in the remaining sessions is what do we learn about the nature of God from the Psalms the fundamental proclamation declaration about what we believe is this We believe that the Lord our God is one. That's it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And then Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. But the fundamental declaration that we believe about God is that God is one. Now, when you talk to people about do you believe in God, if that's the question you're asking to sort of get into a conversation about their spiritual condition, I can tell you almost anybody you talk to in the Bible Belt, if you just ask them do you believe in God, overwhelmingly you're going to get a yes. I don't think your job is done if they say yes to that question because almost everybody will say they believe in God. The question is, What is the nature of the God they believe in? Who is this God they believe in? Describe this God. And oftentimes, the God that somebody says they believe in is a God that's just created in their own image. And it is not the God of Scripture. So what do we learn about this God, about the nature and character of this God that we believe in from the Psalms? So we're going to start today with the 22nd Psalm, and that's that's going to be our focus, Psalm 22. Psalm 22. It's a good psalm to get us thinking about Easter and Good Friday and the events that are coming in the next couple of weeks. This is an experience of someone going through the valley of the shadow of death. This is somebody who's in the darkness. They are surrounded by darkness by virtue of their circumstances and their situation. I said this morning that the, the largest type of psalm that you find in the collection of 150 laments. This is a lament psalm. What kind of God is this when we're in the dark, when we find ourselves in the darkness? Here's what we know about the God we believe in. When we're in the darkness, when we're suffering, God is a God who suffers for us and with us. So now let's look at what the psalmist says. We get a little introduction here to the psalm. It has a title, so we get a little bit of background. Psalm 22 says above verse 1, For the director of music, to the tune of the doe of the morning. Uh, Jaren, I don't know what the tune of the doe of the morning is. There's no way to know. Wouldn't it be nice to know? But these words were set to the tune of the doe of the morning. And doesn't that sound nice? The Doe in the Morning. I was in Fayetteville, Arkansas last weekend, and I went running by Lake Fayetteville, and I was the only one out there about 7 o'clock in the morning, and I kept running into deer. Now, Not literally running into them, but seeing them. And they didn't run away. It was, uh, it was, it was wonderful, scenic, peaceful, ironic. Uh, the Doe of the Morning. But I don't think that's what this title indicates about this particular psalm. When you read it, it's not a, it's not a picture of, peace and security and safety and it's it's much more threatening than that and probably the doe of the morning is a doe that's being hunted uh, which is not quite the sweet image that you know we like to think so this is the title the director of music to the tune of the doe of the morning a psalm of david and it opens with a cry of agony my god my god why have you forsaken me Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day. You don't answer. By night, I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. So this psalm of of David, we don't know what situation might be going on in David's life, but it is titled A Song of David, is one in which he is crying out of agony. And and first we hear this personal pain, this personal anguish, and it's encapsulated in three questions. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from my cries of anguish? This is a picture of a person whose suffering is almost too great to fathom. On top of whatever terrible situation is going on, This person, the psalmist, David, expresses it in words that say the situation is bad, and added to that, God, I feel like you have abandoned me. Of all the bad things that can happen, not being able to feel God's presence, feeling like God has abandoned you, Night and day, crying out to him, hearing no response, not able to get rest because you are so troubled by God's absence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there's two more. Why are you so far from saving me? It's like my situation is bleak, but I don't even feel like the end is near for this situation. I don't feel like I'm about to come out on the other side. And then, why are you so far from my cries of anguish? I feel like you can't even hear me. I'm groaning, I'm crying, but it just seems like my prayers, my cries, my groans aren't making it to you. You feel so far from hearing them. Now that sounds like somebody who's in a really bad situation. And who's feeling at least depression based on their circumstances. Now that's how the psalmist feels in this experience. And then I I cry out by day, you don't answer. By night, I find no rest. So this is a 24-7 experience. It's not like he can get his mind off of it and do other things. Whatever this situation is, is all-consuming. And he's crying out to God 24-7. And God just doesn't seem to be answering. God doesn't seem to be near. Now that's how the psalmist feels. Now, verse 3 expresses what the psalmist knows. Now, you'll often find in your own dark places in life that what you believe and what you feel are sometimes in in conflict with one another. You might say, "I, I believe this about God. In fact, I might know this to be true about God, but it's just not how it feels right now. And there's often a conflict between the two. So he's just told us how he feels, but, but what does he know? What does he believe? And, and verse 3 tells us, yet. Now in the Psalms, we'll often find lines balancing other lines. And one of the ways they balance is like the opposite or the antithesis. Here's this, but this. Now sometimes the Psalms will like have one line and the next line just says the same thing. We call that synonymous parallelism. Saying two things in the same way. But at other places, says this, and then a but. And it sort of shows the antithesis of the first. So, here's how I feel. But. And now, here's what he knows. You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. And the third claim is verse five to you they cried out and were saved in you they trusted and were not put to shame now the beauty of a poem is how lines balance other lines so how many questions does he ask God in verses one and two three questions what was the first one my God my God why have you forsaken me now look at the first claim in verse three about what he knows Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You're the one Israel praises. Three lines will balance, three statements about what he believes about God will balance his three questions. The first one was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 3 responds to that. You are the one enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. What's the second question he poses to God? Why are you so far from saving me? Look at verse 4, in you our ancestors put their trust, they trusted and you saved them. So he feels like God's far from saving him, but what does he know? That in the past God has shown up and delivered his people, he has saved them. It like answers his question. He's answering his own questions. And then the third one is, why are you so far from my cries of anguish? Look at verse 5, to you they cried. And were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So he feels a certain way, but now he knows different. He knows that God has not abandoned him. God is the one enthroned as the Holy One. He's the one Israel praises. He never abandons his people. You might feel like God's far from saving you, but God is near. You may feel like he doesn't even hear your cries, but he does hear your cries. And the psalmist knows that but at this particular moment, that's not how he feels. And what we're going to find in these Psalms, and we're going to see it tonight, you often feel bad, devastated. And you know what the psalmist does when the psalmist feels that way? He says it. He says it to God. He prays it to God. He doesn't worry about being polite. He doesn't worry about trying to put a a happy face on bad circumstances the psalmist will say it to god and i think in a sense models for us how we ought to be honest when we express ourselves to god if we feel bad if we're angry if we want god to you know if we feel like we want to shake our then you should shake your fist god can take it we see it in the psalms they do it the psalmist does it regularly so that's his sort of personal anguish, personal pain. But there's also the public spectacle that he feels. It's not just an internal situation. Look at how he expresses how he feels like a public spectacle. But he's just said all these things he believes about God. God is the one enthroned in heaven. God is the one who's, who saves us. God is the one who hears our cries. And now he's going to give the antithesis of that. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man so he might know who he is created by God he might know that God loves him but at this moment I don't even feel human I feel subhuman and you could pick an animal that you feel like and most of them would have you know some redeeming quality like like a lion I feel like a lion or I feel like I don't know a hippopotamus or whatever you feel like but how about worm I don't even feel like a human. I'm a worm, not a man. And uh, I don't know what worm comes to mind, but I think of a slug. And uh, it, it's a Hebrew word that could actually mean a slug. Slugs aren't native to Kentucky. I guess they're everywhere. But I don't know if you know the slug I'm thinking about, but they're, they're like sort of uh, they have a, like have a gooey, sticky kind of... Uh, covering on them and they got the two tentacles and they and they move along and they leave a spot where they've crawled and you know your mom told you not to put salt on them when you were little and you probably did it a few times and they just writhe in pain you know the kind of you know what I'm talking about right the slug I'm talking about well that that's pretty much what the psalmist says I just feel like a I feel like a slug worm not a human and it's very descriptive and it lets you know how he feels Scorned by everyone, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Now, it's one thing to mock someone. I don't know what a standard mock is, like na-na-na-na-na. But it's far worse if someone shakes their head when they do it, isn't it? I mean, I might hold my head still and say nah na 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 But if I say na-na-na-na, how much worse is that? It's much worse. But th- he's, he feels not only is this situation like his own personal suffering, but he feels rejected by others, and they mock him. They taunt him. And the particular taunt is, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And, and, and that's a really low blow in, in the, in the cir- circumstances he's in, whatever it is. It's like... Well, you say you believe in God, but look at this mess you're in. So either something's wrong with your faith or something's wrong with your God. Now that's a, that's a low blow when you're in the pit. Either something's wrong with your faith, and we got plenty of people who will try to tell you that when you're having really bad things happen in your life. If you just had more faith, that wouldn't happen to you. Or God must be mad at you because you've disobeyed God. Like, that's why these bad things are happening to you. That's why you're in the pit. Something's wrong with your faith. And there's plenty of people who will say, you're just pie in the sky, think you're you're calling upon a God who doesn't exist. You've created this God to make yourself feel better about, you know, the afterlife or something like that. None of those things are very comforting to a believer in their moment of trial. But that's the way this person expresses his public anguish that he's experiencing. He feels he's a public spectacle. Verse 9 is the actual cry for help. Verses 9, 10, and 11. Here's where he actually asks God for something. He's just asking questions about why God's not doing things, and then he's expressing how he feels, but now he actually gets around, here's what he wants God to do for him. Verse nine. Yet you brought me up out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you've been my God. Yeah, my situation's really bad, but as I think about it, I know that I only came into being by your providence, I was sustained by you through my mother nursing me. You have raised me up. You have a plan for my life. So I know all these things. And because of these, all these things, he says, do not be far from me. And that's it. You can highlight that. That's the thing he's asking for. God, in these terrible moments in my life, do not be far from me. He doesn't ask God to remove the situation, to take away his enemies. Not not yet. The first thing he asks for is, do not be far from me. He's asking for God's presence. Just let me know your presence. And there are some awful circumstances we have that just can't be fixed. Something has happened and it can't be reversed. It can't just be fixed. Some situations can, but no matter, the thing the psalmist is asking for is God's presence. And, and thought seems to be, no matter how bad the circumstance might be, no matter how deep the pit, no matter how fast the waters are rising, if you're with me, God, I can face it squarely. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Now, at verses 12 through 18, he returns to a cry of just being attacked by his enemies. A cry of enemy siege. He says in verse 12, Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Now, you'll know uh, from the book of the prophet Amos that uh, there are cows of Bashan that are particularly fat, which is a good thing for cows, right? You don't, you, you don't see commercials about how to slim down your cows. There are no diet pills for the cows. Fat cows are a good thing. Well, uh, that's what uh, the prophet uses cows of Bashan to talk about women who are living in luxury, and, and so there, he calls them cows of Bashan, and he doesn't mean it as a compliment. But, but why does the prophet do that? Because they were known for being well-fed, large. Well, how about the bulls of Bashan? Well, apparently, they're like the cows of Bashan. Particularly large would be intimidating. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls, Of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. So, raging bulls, roaring lions, that's what he feels like he's surrounded by. It's not literally bulls and lions, it's people who are his enemies. And he said they mock him and taunt him. That sounds like lions who open their mouths wide and roar. And then he says, I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is turned to wax, it is melted within me, my mouth is dried up like pieces of pottery, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, you lay me in the dust of death. I mean, what a beautifully poetic statement and way of saying, I'm washed out, I'm dried up, and I feel like skin and bones. And now we're back to an animal again. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And now he talks about vicious dogs. This is not like man's best friend kind of dogs. These are scavenger, fierce, wild dogs that were dangerous so he feels surrounded you can feel the terror bulls roaring lions vicious dogs and that's the 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 statement about his enemies surrounding him i mean sounds bleak and it doesn't seem at this moment to be getting any better And then we have another cry for help, starting in verse 19 through 21. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. We're back to the same cry. Yeah, it's bad, just don't be far from me. My enemies are near, but I need you to be closer. Do not be far from me. And here, for the first time in this psalm, he uses the personal name of God. You know where it says, Lord? That's Yahweh. You know God has a name and it's not God. That's who he is, but his name is Yahweh. <clears throat> and it goes all the way back to Moses and when I mean, God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and Moses finally agrees and he says, "Well, when I ask him who sent me, who should I say?" "Tell him I am. Tell him I am that I am sent you." Well, that's the to be verb I am and Yahweh is The name built off of that stem. His name is Yahweh. It means I am. Or I am that I am. But it's not just that God exists. right? I am sounds like God saying just a statement of existence. But it's more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. You go back there to Exodus 3 when he's giving Moses these instructions. And Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And he says, tell him I am sent you. And he follows that up with, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I am with you. It's not just that God is. It's that God is with us that is really powerful. So that's the name. That's what God's name means. I am with you. And now he uses that name, that personal name, Yahweh, Usually in the Old Testament, when you see the name Lord. Some translations will do all caps. That's the, the divine name, Yahweh. <clears throat> and he uses it here. But you, Lord, Yahweh, you, your name means I am with you. Do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. And then he adds, deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. So now he rehearses those same animals and saying, deliver me from them. And guess what God does? God delivers him. And this is one of those laments that turns to praise and thanksgiving. So look at verse 22. Here's the declaration of praise. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. Do you hear how that answers verse 1? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does the psalmist know by verse 24? He has not turned his face away from the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from me. He has listened to his cry for help. Verse 25. From you comes the theme of my praise and the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before Him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve Him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim His righteousness, declaring to a people who are not even born yet it is done man i like verses 22 and following better than 1 through 21 but the truth is sometimes i feel like verses 1 through 21 and even as you were hearing verses 1 through 21 what what were you thinking Somebody might think, I wonder what's going on in David's life that would cause him to cry out in such a way. What's the situation? It just says it's a psalm of David to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, but it doesn't say what's the situation. And David had plenty of bad situations, bleak, dark, the loss of loved ones like the baby born to he and Bathsheba. You know, that, that would certainly be the kind of situation where you might cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you don't think people were mocking David during that time? Because he had betrayed the nation by his adultery with Bathsheba. You know, and when your political leaders do things like that, people tend to mock them, taunt them, say all manner of things about them. Maybe, but we don't know. Maybe it's good that we don't know. Maybe the fact that we don't know makes it more relatable. Maybe you weren't thinking about David. Maybe you were thinking about your own life. Maybe that's how you've felt before. Or maybe that's the way you feel this morning. Forsaken. Wondering why is God so far away? Feels like God's not even hearing your cry. Or, maybe, as I went through that, you remembered the words of Jesus. Because both in Matthew 27 and Mark 15, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says one saying. In Matthew and Mark, just one saying. And it's the same one in Matthew and Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Jesus' experience of crucifixion, His mind went to Psalm 22, and he quotes the words of verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is surely a dark situation in the life of the psalmist. Well, Jesus is literally hanging in the darkness when he says those words. The darkness has enveloped the whole scene, literally. And it's like like creation is collapsing back into chaos. It's such a... Big moment, not just for Jesus, but for the whole creation when he cries out those words. Do you remember what the creation was like before God said, let there be light? you got to go all the way back to like Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what was the earth? It was formless and void and what was over? And darkness was over the whole deep. Darkness was over the whole thing. And into that darkness, with power and beauty, God utters the words, let there be light. And suddenly, from the chaos, there's creation and there's light. But in those moments when Jesus cries out these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the darkness that literally envelops that scene, it's like the whole creation is collapsing back into chaos when he cries out those words. And, I mean, we don't have to wonder why Jesus might say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's being crucified. The most humiliating and agonizing type of death in the ancient world. Cicero, who uh, precedes Jesus, but who tells us a lot about Roman history, says about crucifixion, it was the worst type of death that the Romans carried out as punishment on others. Uh, Worse than being fed to lions, worse than being burned to death, worse than being drowned. It was awful, agonizing, humiliating. And, And we know the Romans were doing this. You go back like, all the way to like 71 BC, and, and you might know about it because a slave's revolt read, led by Kirk Douglas, if you're old enough, like 1960, you'd have to be watching like Spartacus, you know that, played by Kirk, Doug, the Kirk Douglas. Well, that's a true story about a slave's rebellion, slave's revolt against Rome. It lasted three years, and they, in the course of that, before they put it down, they, they took, they arrested like 6,000 slaves, led by Spartacus, who was a gladiator slave. They finally put that down. And in order to discourage another uprising, another slave's revolt, they lined the Apian Way, which is, would be like I-35 or I-40, major travel way. They lined it for 120 miles with crosses where they hung those slaves that had re- revolted. So if you have devised this method of execution for the purpose of discouraging people from rising up in rebellion, I mean, it's to be a deterrent, then you make it as ugly and awful as you can possibly make it. And it's not on a hill far away. It's in the most visible area to discourage other people from doing whatever these people did. And, and it's not just the physical torture of it, and that was enough. I mean, we're talking about nailing you to a cross piece after you'd been beaten nearly to death with the strips of leather and bone or metal on the end of them where it just opened up the flesh on your back and, and tears into the skeletal tissue so it's not only painful, but it's bloody. After that's been done to you and you've had to carry that cross piece from the place where you're beaten to the place where the vertical cross sits there all the time, in a visible place. Then they lay you with your back opened up down in that dirt and nail you to the cross piece and then lift that up and drop you into the slot that's made for that cross piece on the vertical piece where you hang there and ultimately most people die by asphyxiation because they can't lift up to get air. Finally, the weight of your own body becomes your executioner. It's no way to die. And, and we know that. But we often forget the psychological torture that goes with it. The taunting. It's not that the Romans just allowed people to taunt you if you were being crucified. They encouraged it. It was part of the deal. The taunting. It's, it, you can only imagine the taunts, even sexual taunts, that Romans would utter at a Jewish man naked being tortured like this we forget all of that we forget the psychological torture and humiliation of it and in that darkness jesus says these words why it's our sin he endures that an experience that causes him to think of Psalm 22:1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endures that because of my sin and yours. We had broken God's law. We had no way back to God. No chance of being restored, being at peace with God. But only hostility. We were destined for wrath and destruction. And, and God could have just wiped us all out just said forget this annihilated the whole creation but that would violate God's love or God could have just looked the other way like your, like your, your grandparent like a, like a you know a grandmother or grandfather they're nicer to you than parents generally my mother would spank me put me in time out punish me but my grandmother Especially when I was like six, seven, eight, nine, ten, she would she would try to hide me. She'd try to protect me. I can still remember, she being at my house, sitting on the couch, maybe a blanket there on the couch, and me in trouble with my mom, and me running from her. And she's like, "Come over, come over here, come over here," and jump on her lap, and she covered me with a blanket. Now, my, you know, I'm seven years old, so maybe I think I, my mom doesn't know where I am, but, you know, now I know. She knew exactly where I was. And, and I remember my grandmother saying, Mary, don't whip him. Don't whip him, at least while I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we kind of like to think about God as like the grandparent in the sky, you know, who just wants us, who just want, willing to just look the other way. But God's holy. He can't just look the other way. It would violate something in God's nature. So God's not in a dilemma, but from a human point of view, I'm thinking, well, what's God going to do? And so what God does is he determines he will satisfy both his anger towards our sin and show love to his creation by giving his own son. And in that moment, Jesus cries these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's not just those words, but there are other words in this psalm that depict Jesus' crucifixion. Did you notice at verse 7, All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. Did that seem familiar? Matthew 27, 39 says, Those who passed by hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads. Exactly the same line. And then verse 8. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Matthew 27, 43. Here's what they say. Here's how they taunt Jesus. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. It's the same taunt. And then as you look down at verse 14, when he says, I'm poured out like water, the psalmist says. What happens when the spear is thrust into Jesus' side in John's account? What comes out? Water and blood poured out like water. When he says, My mouth is dried up like pieces of pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. What a poetic way to express I thirst. John 19, 28. When he says in 16, dogs surround me, pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. What does the dogs pierce my hands and feet? That's an odd way to express maybe hands. I see feet. It's just an odd way to express a dog attack. But we know in the crucifixion of Jesus, his hands and his feet were pierced. And then verse 18, they divide my clothes and cast lots for my garment. And you look at verse 35 of Matthew 27. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And then the end of the scene, verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to people yet unborn, it is done, or he has done it. It's one Hebrew word. Do you know how this story ends of the crucifixion of Jesus in John's gospel? One Greek word. It is done. It's not just Psalm 21, 22, one. It's the psalm as a whole. That's why Jesus thinks about it. The whole psalm reflects his experience of crucifixion and he does it for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree." That's Galatians 3:13 and 14. 2 Corinthians 5:21, "God made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." Now, one last point to make about this. I used to say at this point that God turned his back on his son here because Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The earliest instruction I had about Jesus' crucifixion was God, the Father, turned the back on the son here. Now, that bothered me because I'd always think, man, if my son were going through some awful situation like that, I can't imagine abandoning him in that moment. But there were theological explanations for why that were so. But I'm not sure about that anymore. Now, Jesus is bearing the sin of all humanity, and he's bearing the wrath of God, and he's taking our place. I'm not questioning any of that. I'm questioning this one little additional point that says the father turned his back. What do we learn in this psalm that Jesus quotes at verse 24? He has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. And when you think about it, what does it say about God who is one? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. How can they be one if one person of the trinity can turn his back on another person of the trinity is there some fracture here in the trinity are they no longer one is is jesus just disin you know chanted with the whole idea i would argue no that what one member of the trinity does the trinity does together in unity yes jesus is bearing the wrath for our sin well so is god the father and god the spirit What they do, they do as one. And they do it for us. That's really the point. So if you're here and you recognized your sin and your separation from God and you called upon the name of of Jesus and he delivered you and forgave you, you should be so joyous about that today. It shouldn't just be going through the motions Another week we come to worship. What's, what are we doing for lunch today? To not take joy in what God has done for us in his son. And maybe you're here today and you're feeling guilt and, and, you, don't, and you feel like you're so far away from maybe the God who made you, from the kind of person you want to be. And the answer is to call upon the one who cried out on your behalf, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the solution to your problem. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful today that you have made a way for us through the death of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, that we can know you, and we can be forgiven. Father, we are grateful today. May we take joy in that. And if there's someone here who's never called upon the name of Jesus, who's never acknowledged what Jesus has done for them, I pray that today they would do it. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. (laughs)